so with Weaver's workshop, when I wrote my artist statement, the first couple lines of it before I go into like the actual kind of nitty gritty of it is woman, which worker do I labor for the joy of the material, the feeling through my hands? Do I make because I'm told this is the role I belong in? Why does my skill cause fear and anger? Who am I in this world? And I think that sort of beginning kind of series of statements and questions are obviously very specific to that work and that sort of tableau. You could replace some of those specific nouns and they would be true of like a lot of the questions and feelings that a lot of the characters in these Russian folklore stories that I am reading or these are kind of inspired by, right? And so I think they're kind of these generic fears and questions that a lot of us feel. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 256th episode, I'm very excited to be joined by Maya Stern, who spoke with me all about her work, which is influenced by folklore and fairy tales. We talk about how that winds up imbued in her work, and especially an installation that we discuss at length, Weaver's Workshop, her MFA thesis which is based on a Slavic folklore about Baby Yaga, which is a supernatural woman who's very powerful. And Maya describes that at times seen as a witch or somewhat evil entity, but very powerful. And we talk about how that could be used to explore various roles and ideas about women today. Maya has an extensive experience in sculptural forms and particularly glass. And we talk a little bit about her fine artwork, like this installation, as well as her production work, there are plenty of places to check it out, but be sure to follow her at Stern Glassworks everywhere, Instagram, you name it. You can also check out her sculptural work and installations at maya-stern.com, and her production work can be found at sternglassworks.com. Maya was selected as one of our pro competition winners in 2020 by Jura Liz Tran, so we're very excited to feature her on this episode. I would like to note that our 2021 student competition is now open through May 15th. So if you are currently enrolled or graduated in 2020 from an accredited BA, BFA, MA, MFA program, you should apply to the competition. Our juror this year is Kendra Balgren, who runs James May Gallery and is the director and curator there. Fabulous space, so we're very excited to have her on board. She'll be selecting five undergraduate and five graduate artists to appear and feature their work on an upcoming episode of Studio Break for a total of 10. The application process is super easy. You submit your website address and or portfolio site on Instagram, a small fee, your name, of course, and that's it. You just email that all in and you are done. If you'd like more information, head on over to studiobreak.com, look for the student competition page, and that's where you can find all the information on how to apply. It's always super exciting, so once again, if you want to apply or know somebody that should, please help share this opportunity. If you're new to listening to Studio Break, I encourage you to head on over to studiobreak.com. We've got a bunch of interviews there that you can listen to while you're working away in the studio. It makes a great studio companion. Once again, you can listen right there on the default player or just click those links and subscribe to the podcast. We've always got something to listen to. If you want to follow Studio Break on social media, be sure to like our Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter at Studio Break. And of course, be sure to follow on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. And with those announcements out of the way, here is our interview with Maya Stern. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break. Maya Stern, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? 
I'm excellent. We were just talking about the wonderful weather down in Carbondale, Illinois, where you recently earned your MFA in 2020 from Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. And you were one of our winners for the Studio Break Professional Competition. Again, that was last fall and juried by Liz Tran. So super excited to have you on. Thanks so much for, for doing this. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. I'm really excited and honored to be part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm excited to learn more about your work. Obviously, you know, I know that glass is kind of your maybe primary media. And I'm sure as people review your website, it's maya-stern.com. There's tons of different work up there. I know that there's a lot of materials that you use also in these installations. So I'm really excited to learn all about it, but I always like starting out way back at the beginning. So maybe start out by just telling us uh, where you're from. So I'm, I'm originally from Marion, Massachusetts, um, which I always think is kind of funny now because I now live right next to Marion, Illinois, mm -hmm. where Cape <laughs> Air flies out of, which is like a tiny little airline that's from right where I'm from. So I always find that to be a humorous <laughs> parallel, sure. but I'm from Marion, Massachusetts. It's a little, little town right off the ocean, which is a big part of kind of like who I am, I guess. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I got into glass actually as a little kid where my mom sent me to summer camp when I was at 12 years old. It was a Bucks Rock camp in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my early experiences are like these East Coast sort of things. Well, and again, that's interesting. I, you know, had a grandfather that was like into stained glass and, you know, made windows and you know, things like that. I was very bad at it. So I had some experience kind of growing up with that. But was that something that was just kind of appealing to you too? Like just kind of working with your hands and kind of exploring things that were kind of three-dimensional? Yeah, I think so. You know, I had a lot of creative people around me. And so I think there's just a lot of art and things like that. So my mom is not an artist herself. She's a surgeon, but she was big into gardening. So mm -hmm. she was always digging in the ground and it would have me digging in the ground with her. And it wasn't really making in the same way, but I associate those things really closely. My grandma, she loves to do ceramics. So when we would go visit her, we would, you know, play with clay with her and sometimes fire it, sometimes not. My uncle also is really into those things. So there's just a lot of people making around me a lot. And so I think that that was just part of how I was brought up. Yeah, it's interesting to to think about that. I kind of wish I had that. I just had my brother that would just, you know, block every, uh, you know, basketball shot attempt or something like that, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> That's fun too, though. <laughs> I guess, I guess. But did you have any kind of like formal education? That? Did you get interested in, in doing that earlier on? Or was that something that kind of came on later? Or So we went to art summer camp starting really early. So that was, I guess, not exactly formal, formal in that like it wasn't school, mm -hmm. but, you know, they were actually like teaching us techniques and how to do things. So there was a certain amount of formal education in there. And then we also went to private schools that had fairly good arts programs, I guess. So like starting in, you know, elementary school, we went to these schools that had pretty good arts education mm -hmm. and that had an emphasis on them. And so I was just kind of lucky that we had a lot of access to that. And then by the time we were in high school, there was a lot, a lot of specified arts programming that we were, I keep saying we, because I'm thinking of my siblings too. I'm the youngest of okay. um, <laughs> four. Um, so I have, I have two older sisters and an older brother. And so I just keep saying we without thinking about it. <laughs> So, yeah, we, we all had access to, you know, 
arts through the high school and arts through our grade schools and arts through these summer camps. And then, like I mentioned earlier, I kind of went to a second summer camp that my siblings didn't go to, which was that Bucks Rock one, where whereas I found glass. And I became really passionate about that. So once I started doing that, my parents started helping me sign up for like continuing education classes through RISD. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I, w- I was able to take like glass blowing classes, you know, with his first name was Rick mm-hmm. through Rizzy's continuing education classes. And I would show up with like my basketball jersey after school <laughs> and my mom would drive me out there or sometimes my dad. I don't know. You know, so I was able to take quite a bit of actual like formal, you know, classes of different different sorts. Well, and at that age, I would imagine it's got to be really cool to be around people and see things. You know, again, I mean, we we certainly didn't have like a glass shop in high school or something like that. But, you know, you never really saw anybody kind of making stuff. I would imagine in that environment you saw all sorts of cool art. I think I was very privileged to have the ability to get access to that stuff so early. I mean, being able to to have hands-on glass and, you know, that summer camp that I mentioned was so specialized. It had glass, it had sculpture, it had you know, just so many different specialized arts that really took these in-depth looks at them. I I do think that was a really particularly privileged experience. And so I, I just think that was really lucky. Because of that, I was able to figure out really early that I was really passionate about that. And so I was able to direct a lot of my later decisions and continue on a path because of that. So that's cool. Yeah, absolutely. And and I would think that, you know, that gave you that kind of direction. I mean, was that something then where you started, you know, eventually seeking out, you know, an undergraduate program for glass specifically? Yeah. So when I first was looking at undergrad programs, I already knew I was super passionate about not just art, but specifically glass. It had to be glass because I hated drawing. Drawing gave me unbelievable amounts of anxiety and I it wasn't into just generally art. It had to be glass, right? That was my thing. But I also really loved science. You know, my parents were both doctors and I always thought I'm going to be a surgeon, going to, you know, until mm-hmm. I found glass and it had started to change what I wanted to be and I felt conflicted. And so I was only looking at places that I could do both. I could pursue my glass and I could also pursue like an undergraduate medical program, you know? And so I ended up applying early decision to two places where I'd be able to do that, got in or not early decision, early action, whatever it is that lets you still have the choice Mm -hmm. to two places, (laughs) got into both of them and ended up choosing to go to Tulane, which I loved. It was a great school, great program. And did a lot of glass with Gene Koss, you know, under Gene Koss's program there. And it was great. But what ended up happening was I quickly discovered I didn't put in the effort to get A's in my science classes. Mm-hmm. But I always put in the effort to spend, you know, every night in the studio to finish that piece to have a good crit. Mm-hmm. And so I realized I didn't care about being a pre-med student. I cared about being an art student. And so I had a very odd undergrad in that once I realized that, I realized I wanted to be in an art school specifically. I wanted to be in a place where the entire environment was dedicated to that. All of my courses were going to be really focused and all the students around me were going to be really focused on that goal and mindset and whatever. So I transferred, but I didn't want to lose time. Sure. (laughs) So I only was willing to transfer if I could stay on track. So I ended up transferring to RISD kind of managed to do that. I had to do like a summer intensive, but that was it. So that was really cool. 
long story short, I ended up transferring a second time later, uh, but the same thing happened. So I ended up graduating from Cleveland Institute of Art, but did it all in four years. It's so interesting how, you know, these paths evolve for all of us, you know, you can kind of have something that leads you towards a different direction and then another one. But it sounds like, again, you had that uh, trajectory that kind of led you to pursue what you really were passionate about. So that's super exciting. Yeah. I'm interested, you know, too, thinking about those experiences, you know, as an undergraduate, I mean, were there different types of artists that you were kind of drawn to that, you know, really kind of changed the way they started thinking about, you know, what you could do with glass and, and maybe insulation, sculpture, that kind of thing? There's been different artists that I've been interested in over time, but I, I think that less than being really inspired by this individual artist, it's more that like, while I've been in school, it's been that I get really, I mean, particularly while I was an undergrad, it was that I would get really involved in a idea or a technique. And that would then cause me to get like super sucked into something. So like, mm -hmm. while I was an undergrad, I came there like, oh, I already know how to blow glass, which was like a bad attitude, quite frankly. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I've been blowing glass since I was a kid. Like, oh, I got this. And so that part wasn't as exciting. I would just go and blow glass and I'd feel like a cool kid. And I would, you know, probably be a little bit of, you know, not the person you want, you want you looking <laughs> back, you wish you were, right? Sure. But I would then go into the cold shop and I'd go into the kiln shop and I'd be like, oh, this is a challenge. This is something new. This is something exciting because it was something I hadn't done before. And so that made it feel exciting in a way that the, that the hot shop wasn't. But I think what was more important was that all of my background in the hot shop was from this very craft sort of background. I was making vessels. I was making, you know, bowls, cups, things like that. And they were, you know, sometimes decorative, sometimes whatever, but I was really thinking of glass blowing in this very kind of traditional sense. Mm -hmm. And to an extent, Tulane, but Tulane, not as much because it was my first year. So the focus was different, mm -hmm. but I got to RISD and especially with what RISD is, you know, they were asking you to be very conceptual and that was very exciting to me, but also very scary to me because no one had really asked me to do that so much before. And I really didn't know how to do it. And these things that were new in casting, particularly that was new to me, it was a whole new language. So I could take this thing that I was learning how to speak in and apply it to this new idea of conceptual work. Mm -hmm. But the hot shop, which already was so fixed in my mind as this language of vessels and stuff like that, I found it very hard to break out of. I couldn't really apply it to this conceptual sort of thing. And so that made me kind of gravitate towards different things, much more so than looking at other artists and being like, oh, this artist is inspiring mm -hmm. or their work's inspiring or something like that. So I was really technique driven in many ways because it just made me feel free and it, to, to be able to speak. You kind of talked about it, like kind of developing your language. I mean, essentially there's so many skills I'm assuming that you learned in those experiences that, you know, you're kind of learning how to speak. That totally makes sense. Um, maybe, you know, aside from those vessel pieces, I mean, what kind of things did you leave that experience with, uh, in terms of like a, like, did you have a thesis for your undergraduate? My undergraduate, I ended up finishing at 
CIA, Cleveland Institute of Art. And so that work was all about the quotidian or the everyday. And so I really wanted to, with that work, kind of think about how basically we underappreciate our everyday objects and how they really are valuable. And I think that's sort of a common thought that we, we, we think about, but we sort of then go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's important. And then we sort of forget about it again. Mm-hmm. And so I did this survey of just a lot of people that I you know, had contact with or had access to. And I, I gave people this kind of questionnaire or, or, you know, this sort of form they could fill out. And I said, over the course of one to three days, your choice, however much you're willing to do, every time you go into a space, tell me what the space is. And then tell me what objects you think are like the most significant or most descriptive of that space or that activity you do in that space. Mm -hmm. I don't mean your house, but I mean your bedroom, your bathroom, your kitchen, you know, each individual space within those bigger, those bigger spaces. And I was looking at what people were saying. And then from that, I was looking for what are the ones that people aren't saying? So, you know, if they are going into their kitchen and everybody's saying my stove, my, my table, my plate, but nobody's saying their kitchen knife, mm-hmm. but you need your kitchen knife for almost any dish you're going to cook. Well, isn't your kitchen knife pretty important? Shouldn't we care about your kitchen knife? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of how I was kind of picking items. I was kind of looking for what items are being forgotten, what items are really, really important, but nobody in this big group of people that I was kind of looking at were mentioning. And so I was picking the ones that everybody, everybody's leaving out. And that was kind of a fun kind of process just in and of itself of gathering information. Mm -hmm. And then I would take those and I was kind of then thinking about like a material hierarchy and kind of how we perceive value in terms of material and not necessarily actual value, but perceived value. And I was then translating these objects into usually glass, but sometimes glass and other materials. And for the most part, keeping them to real life scale. Um, So I made a backpack that was glass and copper and velvet. I made a kitchen knife block and set of knives, a set of Champlevé playing cards. But here's the kicker. (laughs) Two weeks before my show, I had had a bunch of the work, not the entire thing, but a bunch of the work in a different show down in Southern Ohio. And the gallery burnt to the ground with my work inside of it. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So you just have documentation left of all this? And that's it? For most of it. Oh, wow. For most of it. So I remade some of it, but I didn't have much time. Well, and I would just say, too, this is all work that is available, or at least the images are on uh, maya-stern.com. So, again, looking at lovely glass uh, backpacks and uh, scissors and all sorts of things. So, again, plenty of things to check out there. Well, that must have been traumatic. I mean, like to lose your work and or is it kind of cathartic because you could just kind of move on from it or? It was just sort of surreal at the time, you know, as a program the glass program was on a field trip to corning i think they had like just opened up their new wing and i didn't go because my show was about to open and i had too much to do mark petrovic had it was his first year with leading the program and uh, i didn't go and i remember calling him he didn't answer i don't think and leaving this voicemail being like um mark 
can you call me back? This thing happened. <laughs> um, I have a plan though. <laughs> and I guess he got it and really thought I was like playing a joke on him because mm-hmm. I did that sort of thing to him sometimes. Like I would, I mean, not necessarily of, with that content, but you know, I, I was sort sure. of a trickster and I think he thought I was joking at first, but I, I wasn't. And it was just very surreal. But, you know, I called my sister. She's a photographer. She's older than me. She's been through undergraduate. I think she was already in graduate school at that point. She's like four years ahead of me. So she's sort of like, you know, always one step ahead, kind of knows what mm-hmm. the what the deal is. Called her. She sort of was like, okay, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to help you get nice photos. We're going to do this, this, and this, you know. So she like helped me settle down. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think I was just sort of like in that sort of like days haze, like, okay, we just got to move forward. Like, I think I started making new Champlevet playing cards that same day. Mm-hmm. But that's just sort of how life goes. I do remember feeling like it was going to be a disaster at my defense. And the defense people are invited to come to. It's not just your panel. Mm-hmm. And that day, I just people just kept coming in and coming in and coming in. And I was so nervous. And it was like, the same thing happened at my bat mitzvah when I was 13. I like blacked out. I don't remember what I said. Like I, I, I had the whole defense and I don't remember it. So thank God I recorded it because I could hear it later and like it went okay. Well, that's good. Wow. I mean, again, that's gotta be such a surreal kind of experience. So it seems like it went well then, um, yeah. at least well enough where you didn't decide to just uh, fold up the studio forever. What was the game plan then going afterwards? I mean, did you decide you were going to pursue your MFA right away or? No, you know, I actually didn't think I was going to get an MFA at all. Oh, wow. I was pretty adamant that I didn't need one and didn't want one for a long time. I, I was pretty sure I didn't want to teach. You know, I thought I probably did want to teach in terms of teaching in a public shop or something like that, or maybe one day being able to teach at like Pilchuck or something like that. But I didn't want to teach at like a university. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I sort of had blinders on to an extent. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm going to get residency after residency and I'm going to travel the world going from place to place. And I don't need to have a home base until I want one. And then one day I'm going to build a studio and I'm going to sell my work and that's going to be it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I realized that wasn't exactly how it worked. And I was like, okay, I'm going to work for myself. And I had I, one of the pieces I made for that quotidian thing was a glass jigsaw puzzle mm-hmm. and a lot of interest in it. And so I thought like, Oh, maybe I'm going to try doing some production and try to do some wholesale stuff. And it went okay at first. And then it went less well And I think a lot of that was because I didn't have the right business savvy. Mm -hmm. But I was really trying to work for myself and try to figure out, you know, the combination of how can I do wholesale production lifestyle while pursuing a gallery residency, you know, studio lifestyle. And I think that what I was kind of realizing was that the more I applied for things, I started to see the wording of MFA or, or equivalent life experience. Mm -hmm. And I started to realize that an MFA was not something you only needed if you wanted to teach. It really opened a lot of doors for you. Mm -hmm. And then I started to talk to more and more people about it, including Mark, who I think of as like my mentor, you know, he only taught me for one year, but I like held on for dear life. And now he's never going to be free of me. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, he really, 
was basically saying like at worst case scenario, it's like an amazing residency where you know you have access and you can work for a number of years. At best case scenario, and what it most likely is, is, you know, you'll get a really great education and be able to develop your work and it will open up a bunch of doors, you know? And so I was like, okay, so in the worst case, it's exactly the type of thing I've been looking for. And in the best case, it does a lot more than that. And so then I started to realize like, okay, I, I should be more open to this. And I had been applying to SIU's resident artist program mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where they have somebody come for one semester. And again, I hadn't come here. So, and I didn't really understand what the program was. So I didn't understand how completely unqualified <laughs> I was for what I was applying for. You know, like I was trying to apply to come here and basically like hang around and be this person that would be like in many ways giving something to the graduate students also. And I hadn't even gone to graduate school. Right. And so I kept applying and applying and applying because I really believe, you know, you, you apply year after year, even if you get no's because no's aren't bad. They're just no's. Mm-hmm. And every year or most years I would get a no, but I'd also get this really nice note from Ji Young. Mm-hmm. That would be along the lines of like, no, but like, if you're ever interested in grad school, I think you should check out our program. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I'd always just think like, well, that was really nice, but I wasn't interested in grad school. So then, as I said, I started to become more interested. And the last time I applied, I guess, Ji Young had, had reached out to Mark and was like, Maya should should come here <laughs> but mm-hmm. she should say yes you know and so long story short I realized I was just being obstinate and grad school was a really good thing and it was going to get me further along in my path both in terms of what doors could be open but also my artistic development mm-hmm. a lot faster than me just kind of trying along on my own way, you know, and the program was great, it seemed like, and people had really great things to say about the school, about Ji Young, about, you know, all the different things, but even the location, which I was worried about because it's so far in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. So I said yes. And suddenly when I had been expecting to never go to grad school, I was suddenly packing up and heading to Southern Illinois, right, which was right. an extremely unexpected decision. <laughs> sure. And um, I'm glad I did. You know, I think anybody, when you ask them about their grad programs, has, you know, an emotional experience to an extent. And I think I did, too. Like, I had ups and downs. But overall, I think it was, you know, very beneficial in all the things I thought it would be, developing my art. You know, I really changed what I made drastically from the time I got there to the time I left. So I'm really glad about it. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the nature of the beast. You know, you described a lot about like learning about different processes and, you know, different approaches. And, you know, that's absolutely the kind of thing that you're going to get there, especially I'm sure just, you know, like you were saying before, just having access to all of these, you know, different essentially like labs to just kind of make your creations and, you know, have all these people to bounce ideas off of. What what changed, I guess, as you got there? You know, I know that again, that's a loaded question because, you know, they usually take your work and, and put it in a dumpster and, and tell you to start over. But um, <laughs> what kind of things did you start kind of doing to kind of uh, change things up as you were, you know, pursuing that degree? Well, so Ji Young does this thing called one week projects. So for your first semester, you literally have one week to do a completed work of art. I mean, obviously, he has some understanding that you have one week, but he doesn't 
that's not an excuse for it to be anything less, you know, <laughs> like it's supposed to be a finished piece. And, you know, it, it takes you a little bit to get into that swing. When you look at people's, you know, year after year, when you look at the one week projects, you, there's definitely like that kind of flow being built as, as the first year grads kind of get into it. And that was true for me too. But I think what happens is, is that I, especially being a caster, I am somebody who came in there making really specific standalone cast objects. And can you cast something in a week? <laughs> but can you cast the type of things that I was making in a week? Like, no, technically, like, <laughs> not not really. So, like, technically, could I have done something, some of those spur one week projects? Like, yes, if I had started them really early and they were for, like, the last week or something like that. Mm-hmm. But that's not really like what the purpose of the one week project was really supposed to be. And more than not just because you're, you know, doing it over a long time, which was, you know, sometimes okay, but more because it wasn't supposed to be do the same work you're, you've been doing, you know? So I was trying to figure out, okay, I like doing certain types of things. I like having certain types of aesthetics, certain types of content interests me, but now how do I take those elements that I really like and apply them to this really short term and apply them to something that I can fabricate in materials that will happen in these timeframes and in that I have access to all these sorts of questions. And I ended up accidentally finding myself in these installation realms over and over again. Sometimes it was like fully immersive. Sometimes it was like semi-immersive and really just installed into a space. But more and more, I was doing these like kind of interactive pieces. And when I look back at the actual pieces, a lot of them are not things that I'd be like, oh, I really like that, that work anymore. But what I would say is like, oh, there's elements of what I did in that one week project that I thought was successful or that I hadn't ever tried before that one week project. And that was exciting to me. Mm -hmm. And so then when I moved forward out of that one week project time, and now I had, you know, half of a semester or something like that to start making more developed work, it was clear that those little excited moments were carrying through. And there was this one week project where there was a prompt for it. I don't remember what the prompt was, but I was doing something about communication and I had these kind of two separated booths. Each booth had like a different way of communicating and they kind of misaligned. Mm -hmm. And the piece itself, it was sort of in my mind, kind of overdone, not that great. But there is an aspect of how the people that were watching it as spectators had an experience that was different from the people that were in it at the moment that I thought was really exciting and how those things were playing at the same time and overlapping. But it remained as these very separate experiences that were crucial to both happen for the piece to succeed. And so then I think to a piece that I made later, which I really like called Heroine's Conclusion, which is this piece that is sort of a stage Mm -hmm. that has this big mirror with a horse etched onto it. And there's a saddle kind of seat installed with these cast glass stirrups. And what happens is when you sit on the saddle, you can hold these reins and they're just real leather reins. And only when you're sitting on the seat 
up there and you look into the mirror, does it all align to make it actually look like you're sitting on the horse? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there's these, you know, very theatrical style lights with gels that make it look like a sunset around you. And it's supposed to be this thing that kind of, as you sit on there, kind of completes the picture and sends you into this story. And it makes you feel like the heroine or hero, I guess, um, at the end of their journey. And you have this sort of like victorious sort of uplifting emotion and kind of gives you that, that and puts it into you and kind of, because you're seeing yourself on it, mm-hmm. but for everybody else, there's sort of this disconnect, you know, it sort of has this humor, it sort of has this confusion, you don't look like you're aligned at all. There's sort of the lack of magic, which then makes the magic all the more real when you're actually on it. And so there was this kind of carry through from this thing that wasn't completely successful that I didn't really like in the first one week project. Mm -hmm. I think this is then like my second year that I made the next that piece I was just mentioning with the horse. Mm -hmm. And then bring those elements back in. So I think like, you know, even though it was very different from my original work with the object making in the first year, that horse piece kind of combines it because there's those really meticulously cast stirrups and the meticulousness of the etch on the mirror, but then the element of what was new in that first week project. Yeah. And I think also, you know, you talk a little bit about, you know, storytelling, fairy tales and the importance of that in your work. And so to me, too, it seems like you're starting to play around with that a little bit for the viewer to kind of experience and start to kind of ponder those things as well. Yeah, definitely. Those are, I think, really important in my work sort of throughout my grad school journey and then become even more so kind of as we get towards the end. So again, it sounds like that kind of interactive kind of quality of installations and inviting viewers to kind of question their relationships and maybe start playing around with these ideas of narratives or storytelling, fairy tales. How did, how did that evolve in terms of your thesis exhibition, which I believe is titled uh, Weaver's Workshop? I'm really interested in storytelling and fairy tales and escapism and all of these sort of things and how they combine into tools to connect people and to be used to share knowledge, not just like pass down stories and histories, but also to share criticisms and warnings and other kind of deeper and sometimes negative con- mm-hmm. con- content. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I was thinking about what I wanted to make for my MFA work, I I was sort of struggling at first because I, I didn't want to just do something that was pretty, even though I actually think that making beautiful things just because they're beautiful is fine. I just really mm-hmm. felt like I wanted to do something that was saying something, that, but that didn't want to do something that felt forced. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, kind of just like in that struggle. And I think a lot of us find ourselves in when we're trying to come up with like, what's my thesis, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I was just like, okay, let me just take a step back and go, what are my general interests? Where do I find myself? And I love Baba Yaga. So I'm not sure how well known Baba Yaga is as a character, especially in the United States, but she's sort of the original Slavic which mm-hmm. predates most of the German, you know, fairy tale witches. And her character is this really fascinating character to me. I had done 
you know, a few pieces leading up to her in my earlier time, because I was just really continually fascinated by how changeable she is, how she's this super strong female character in a time where females were often not portrayed as powerful. And if they were, then they were shown as evil. Mm -hmm. And where she is often evil, sometimes she's not, sometimes she's motherly, but you know, she's, she's just this character that's, doesn't fit an archetype and has this sort of never-ending fascination for me. And so I started thinking about fairy tales and folklore and sort of their unbelievably rich history and the history of witches and women and sort of the role of the woman as witch and sort of how that plays out in society and thinking about that in a contemporary sense and also a historical sense. For for me, when I think about any type of story, there's a type of escapism that exists in it. You know, we read stories, we tell stories, sure, to pass information and to do these other things, but to an extent, when you are part of it, and by part of it, I mean when you read it or when you listen to it, or when you remember it, you kind of go to that place for a second. And there's an element of escape. And I think a lot of time people hear the word escapism and they associate that as a negative. But I actually think of that as an extreme positive. Like we need a moment of healthy escapism in our world. Like there has always been strife, difficulty, hardship forever. That has always been true. That always will be true. And people need to cope. And escapism was a healthy part of coping. Obviously, it can be taken to an extreme that becomes not healthy. But story is is typically a really healthy version of that. And so when I think of fairy tale and folklore, not only do they provide that, but they also are these classic teaching mechanisms that give lessons and warnings, but also give ways for people to connect to emotions and give people characters that they can, at all different stages of their life, they can sort of connect to and find things to agree, disagree. And it's sort of the classic thing about fairy tales, right? Like there are these, there's a reason that we tell them to children, Mm -hmm. but I think a lot of people stop realizing is that they're also important for adults too, or they could be if we allowed them to be. And so with Weaver's workshop, when I wrote my artist statement, the first couple lines of it, before I go into like the actual kind of nitty gritty of it is woman, which worker do I labor for the joy of the material, the feeling through my hands? Do I make, because I'm told this is the role I belong in. Why does my skill cause fear and anger? Who am I in this world? Mm -hmm. And I think that sort of beginning kind of series of statements and questions are obviously very specific to that work and that sort of tableau. You could replace some of those specific nouns and they would be true of like a lot of the questions and feelings that a lot of the characters in these Russian folklore stories that I am reading or these are kind of inspired by, right? Mm -hmm. And so... I think they're kind of these generic fears and questions that a lot of us feel. And so as I think about fairy tale, it's sort of something that's very comforting 
but also something that holds a lot of our fears and displays them. With this particular installation, I wanted to make sort of tableau of this powerful woman, but who's very obviously lacking from the scene, Mm -hmm. right? And her lack of color sort of does two things for me. You know, there's a lot of life in some ways because of the state of things, but it's also completely drained of life in, in, in other ways. You know, everything's so clear and white and bright, and there isn't that rosiness and color of life in there. And so it sort of makes that conflict. And I think that a lot of us feel, I mean, especially now as there is so much going on politically in our country, you know, I think that a lot of us are questioning this role of belonging and this, this question of life and who we are is really poignant right now. It's super interesting to think about, you know, the idea of fairy tales and uh, the way that that could kind of, you know, help us to kind of question the world around us. Right. And I guess to kind of think specifically about this, maybe talk a little about some of the pieces that are going on. Cause it looks like, again, there's like a big um, loom and I would rather have you talk about it a little bit more specifically. Cause I'll probably start messing up things that I'm just trying to observe. So there is a big loom that's made out of mostly all cast glass. And then the hardware, the fittings are steel and plexi. Mm-hmm. The weaving is, extruded acrylic that I hand wove on my not glass loom, my wooden loom at home. The loom inside, if you look at some of the close-up details, you'll see that there's these kind of hazy white lines going through the thickness of the glass. I wanted to capture those. To me, they are sort of the the magic, the the unearthly world, the, you know, the, the unknown sort of mm-hmm. that's captured in between. And if you look at the, the weaving itself, that texture is inspired by windswept snow. And again, the whole color palette is icy and cold. It's supposed to have that sort of almost uncomfortable coldness to it. And if you were to go into this installation, the actual room itself was quite cold. Mm-hmm. It's set the room to 65 degrees. So it wasn't freezing, but you weren't you weren't warm in there. Like it mm-hmm. started the longer you spent, the more you were like, hmm, it's a little cold in here, you know? And I wanted that discomfort to us to not be so uncomfortable that you wanted to get out. Obviously, I want you to be able to be in there and to look at the things and to feel it. But I, I do want you to sort of have that sort of coolness creep up on you and to sort of feel that because quite frankly it's not always comfortable to be who you are and it's not always comfortable to sit there and to think about these things Mm -hmm. I think that while you're enjoying and going on these paths and you're in the fairy tale you're in the folklore you know one of the things that happens is you get sent on these trials and you have to you have to discover who who you are. And I'm not sure I agree with that. I'm not sure that you should have to prove your toughness. Mm-hmm. But that seems to be what we're asked to do over and over and over and over again, both in fairy tale and in the real world. And I think that's part of what this exhibition is trying to say is that like is fairy tale really so so fantastic? Like is is it really all that different? from real life? Is it really so magical or is real life actually just as magical? 
So when we keep looking through, there's a few items that are specific sort of nods to some of the story elements from Baba Yaga. So like on top of the loom, there's mirror Mm -hmm. in a Baba Yaga story. One of the young women who gets stuck in Baba Yaga's cottage uses to escape from her. So when she's running away, she drops the mirror and the reflective surface of the mirror glass spreads out and becomes a big lake. Mm -hmm. The snakes are a symbol that's throughout the whole exhibition. They're doing a few different things. Um, I think for me, snakes are a very personal symbol. I am absolutely beyond terrified of them. (laughs) (laughs) It's unbelievably irrational. Like I think that they are stunning and beautiful and very cool. And I just can't get over my fear of them. (laughs) (laughs) And it's interesting because you could kind of think about that maybe related to some of the themes that you've been kind of talking about. Like, again, maybe, you know, there's that relationship with, you know, the fear of things that might harm you or the way that things might come after you or attack your, your character or, you know, again, it kind of really is interesting in the way that it kind of adds to the ideas, I think, behind the work. No, no, no problem at all. I completely agree. And I think that like, you know, along with exactly what you were saying, I think a big part of another way in which these align is that a big part of this whole underlying theme is that part of the way that the power of this missing woman or missing witch who isn't shown, but whose space we're in is that, you know, part of the way that her power exists is that like she is this weaver weaving is a skillful thing right and she's a master of it and being a witch is a skillful thing and she's a master of that being a woman is a skillful thing and she's a master of that right and so mastering these things that are difficult brings you power in many ways right like whether that's mastering the bicycle or mastering, (laughs) you know, whatever it is, those (laughs) those little bits of power. And it's a collection of these things. There's all different ways we see it. So it's like, you know, we see it in language. We see, you know, people taking ownership over words. So, you know, look at even the word witch. That was something that was put upon women and caused women to be killed And now it's something that a lot of women are embracing. And it's this like cool thing right now that people are super into. And it's like, sure, it's sort of niche still, but not really. It's fairly mainstream. And it's like really in. That's maybe not quite the same powerful position as being like a CEO of something, but there's power in embracing all sorts of different things and taking ownership of them. And so I think that in many ways, the snake and my embrace of the snake here is that same sort of power shift in in many ways. I would imagine there's a lot of walking around and interacting and kind of looking and examining and, and thinking about all these things as, as somebody kind of walks around and, and see it. And I think, you know, one of the things that I'm curious about, you talked a little bit about what I thought was a, a dry ice or something kind of emanating out of something before, but maybe talk a little about that. Cause I, again, it looks like that's a glass uh, container, but yeah. Ma- yeah, maybe break that down a little bit too. I don't, I'm curious. Yeah. <laughs> so that is just the thing I, I thought was really cool and really fun to kind of create. So that is a cast glass. I call it a dye vat. Technically speaking, it's cast off of my cast iron cooking pot. 
but I'm calling it a dye vat. It's supposed to be as if it was her dye station for dyeing her gains of, of wool or something like that. And it's really cool how it works. So it can run continuously or almost continuously. So there's just water inside of the vat. And then there is a small little metal kind of cylinder that's actually an atomizer. And I just plug it into the wall and it sort of has this vibration frequency that's specific that atomizes the water and it just makes clouds of mist, basically, of atomized water that just come out. And I put a teeny little fan hidden behind underneath some of that material and it just blows just enough air to kind of puff it right out of there to make it look like it has boiling water coming out. Mm-hmm. Kind of brings some mystery to it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I guess another part of this whole thing is that I am a (laughs) Halloween buff. Like Halloween is my favorite day of the year. I decorate and then I don't take it down until Valentine's Day. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, you know, I have done all this research to make my Halloween decorations like on fire. And I realized that I wanted to make my cauldrons smoke one year. And I found these atomizers for my Halloween cauldrons. And that's when I realized you know, that's when I found the tool to be able to do that for this. And so at first, kind of going back earlier than than this installation, but kind of thinking and trying to figure out what I wanted to do, I kept wanting to do these installations that kind of inevitably couldn't be what I wanted them to be. And I think what the problem was is that I wanted to be a Disneyland Imagineer Mm-hmm. And I wanted to build these sets that were every single square inch of every single everything built and it looked perfect and you would walk into it and you'd be in a completely different world and you'd have no idea that this was ever a gallery space. And the reality is, is that that's actually not what I wanted to do. It's just what I thought I wanted to do. And I also didn't have the means or the capability of doing that. And that kept making me make pieces that didn't work, you know, that would just fail. Once I kind of realized that that's what I was trying to do. And again, shout out to Rachel Sturm, the big sister who is a great teacher. (laughs) And she was like, you know, that's what you're trying to do. And maybe you shouldn't be. And I could take that step back and sort of reassess what are the actual things from that that are important? And why are you keeping drawn to that? And I could start to sort of allow more of the behind the scenes parts to be seen and sort of emphasize certain elements It sort of allowed me to be able to say, okay, this little element of the Disney Imagineer needs to stay, a.k.a. the cauldron or the dye vat that's boiling. Mm -hmm. But the rest of it could basically go, and I just need that little bit and that little bit and that little bit. And so that, for me, made it so that I suddenly had license to say, oh, but I really, really care about having this feature because it excites me. Mm -hmm. And that's a reason for now. And then I can edit that later and maybe remove it, maybe keep it. And that was really hard at first. Like I wasn't good at figuring out at first the saying, okay, I need to not have this giant picture. And then once I got over that, I had a hard time saying, because I was trying to be so cautious after that, that I had a hard time saying like, well, because it excites me is enough reason. You know, I thought after that, there had to be a very specific reason for the piece And then I realized like, oh, it excites me is enough. And then later you can go back and say, okay, is it exciting you really enough? Does it actually add to the piece beyond that? And I sort of learned that editing process sort of as I went, which 
you would think would be something I would have learned earlier, but it took me a while to get there. Yeah. And obviously, too, you know, one of the things that we haven't talked about either is that obviously this happened during the pandemic. So, you know, you were able to install all these pieces, but then maybe didn't have the opportunity to invite people in for an opening or, or things like that and had kind of like documented it. What was the kind of reaction in that process like in terms of, I think you kind of described doing like a, a defense via Zoom or something like that? It did happen during the pandemic. The studios all shut down really fast. So I actually wasn't able to make a fair bit of work that was expected to be in the show, but it was installed in a way that I was happy with it but in my mind this is not like the 100% filled out finished what I imagined were but what ended up happening was I had secured art space 304 you know long before the pandemic and once the pandemic hit I you know got in contact with them I wasn't sure what their policies are going to be they really graciously said you can still use our space but you know we only want you in there we don't want any sort of you know overlaps and people issues Mm -hmm. so they gave me keys and gave me codes to their you know security and let me use the space and set up and then I took pictures ahead of time and took a video walkthrough wrote my statement, all that sort of good stuff, and got it all to my committee a few days in advance of when I was supposed to have the defense with them. And then one of my committee members set up a Zoom defense so that they had to be the ones to set it up so that after we had our approximately hour-long Zoom defense where it was kind of creative, I had one video going that was I think my computer and then a second one going that was on my phone so that I could walk around and also show them things again Mm -hmm. and then you know they kind of said okay hold on and you know popped me into a waiting room so I couldn't see anything couldn't hear anything but they could hear each other and then they kind of came back and said you passed (laughs) (laughs) but they weren't able to come into the space at all like I had thought that maybe you know, the day before they could, or that day, like one at a time come, mm-hmm. but they were not able to. So they never saw it in person. They only ever saw the digital images and, and that's it. But, you know, I had had numerous committee meetings mm-hmm. leading up to the event. So they had seen the loom at different points, not fully installed, but they had seen it, you know, installed without everything else. They had seen the die that they had seen you know different components before they had just not seen all of the components and never seen it all together despite all the difficulties of the past year i'm so glad that you're able to kind of bring this together and and kind of wrap this experience it sounds like again something where you were able to kind of make something really exciting and and to kind of you know have i'm sure all sorts of plans that kind of followed up from there but what has the the last year been like i know that you've been involved in you know various craft events recently but maybe uh talk a little about you know some of those developments after completing your mfa yeah so the, the actually the last year has been very exciting to me um you know i think like a lot of people the pandemic has made us really consider what's next and how do we deal with it mm-hmm. i have wanted to have my own studio for a long time and I've been kind of slowly but surely wondering exactly when and and how and where would that look like 
And so I have used this year to really focus in on making a plan for that and pursuing production business. So I am going to be in probably July, I think is what it is. My brain's a little fuzzy on timeline right now. I think it's July moving to Chicago and opening up a studio. It's not just going to be for me. It's going to be like for for the community where I'm going to be hopefully teaching classes and, you know, have it be where people could be members and use it to make, you know, their own work, but it's all going to be kiln, kiln focused. So kiln, stained glass, you know, fusing, casting, that sort of stuff. So that's been the focus of my past year is really figuring out what that looks like, how to do that. It's been a lot of learning, a lot of planning. And now it's really, now we're at the point where the moves are finally starting to happen. And so that's very exciting. On the other side, the more hands-on day-to-day side of just like living trying to figure out what a home studio looks like so that I could be working mm-hmm. and, you know, providing for myself. And that's looked like a lot of stained glass for me. So I've been doing both, you know, sun catchers and also like a lot, a lot of three dimensional sort of stained glass things. So a lot of terrariums, which I think are a lot of fun. I really enjoy the terrariums and some interesting, actually Baba Yaga lanterns, which is fitting mm-hmm. um, based on our conversation. And that's a really fun, interesting experience because I've, you know, in the beginning, I think I was sort of really focused on sales and production and that was less fulfilling. And in the last number of months, I have started to find a good balance of blending production needs and, you know, monetary needs with blending my artistic voice and interests. And so that's becoming, you know, where you want to be, where you want to sit with that stuff. And like you said, participating in some craft events, both local and online. So that's really what the year has been focused on and now getting ready for that move. Yeah. I mean, how exciting is that? I mean, you're going to be in a totally different environment for sure, right? You're going to not have uh, wood surrounding you. (laughs) You Yeah. So, but again, likewise, it sounds like too, you're able to kind of pursue the things that you're most interested, which is, you know, being able to, you know, work in shops, teach, but not also be in that academic environment in the sense of like working with communities and and things like that. So again, that's got to feel pretty good to be able to, you know, be realizing this, uh, I guess, in the near future. So that's super exciting. Yeah, it's really exciting. And I also just, I really like community things and I'm very excited about having the opportunity to have a space that yeah obviously it does something for me but I can give a lot to the community like one of the things I'm working on setting up is being able to do events that are in conjunction with other local businesses and local music groups and you know things like that where it can you know just be community events and I think that's a really cool opportunity something that I I'm really looking forward to being able to do with a space that I have. Why don't you just remind everybody where are the places to to go and see your work and, and, you know, your shop and all of my social media handles, whether that's Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, anything (laughs) like that is all uh, at Stern Glassworks. Mm -hmm. And uh, my sculpture website is maya-stern.com. And my production website is sternglassworks.com. My location for the upcoming 
shop will be announced. You guys can keep an eye on the stirringglassworks.com website for that. Awesome. Awesome. And, um, you know, obviously lots of stuff developing in the near future for you in July. So that's really cool. Congratulations on that. And again, it's been so fascinating to sit down and talk to you all about your work and, and to learn all about it. So thank you so much for applying to the uh, competition. It's so nice to become familiar with your work. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed chatting with you and I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks to Maya for joining me. You can check out more of her work by visiting her website, maya-stern.com, and you can see production work at sternglassworks.com. She's everywhere on social media, so be sure to follow at sternglassworks, and especially on Instagram, so that you can stay up to date when she moves to Chicago and opens up her new shop. Another reminder that our 2021 student competition is open through May 15th, so if you want to apply, get those applications in. It's open to all currently enrolled or recently graduated BA, BFA, or MA, MFA visual artists. Our juror this year is the fabulous Kendra Balgren, who is the curator and director and also an artist at James May Gallery. So very excited to have her on board. She'll be selecting five undergraduate and five graduate artists to share their work and have an interview on Studio Break. So if you want to apply, head on over to studiobreak.com. Look for the student competition page for more details. But it's quite simple. You submit a small fee. You submit a portfolio website and or Instagram handle and you are done. We'd also really appreciate it because this is always an exciting competition. If you could help spread the word by sharing this with other friends and maybe students. So please help spread the word. If you are a Studio Break stranger before, head on over to studiobreak.com and check out some other podcasts. You can also subscribe or listen right there in the default player. Once again, all of those posts have Oons of the Artist artwork, links to their website so you can find more information. We've got a big archive so you can go through that on the left sidebar and just go back year by year because we're almost at 10 if you like the podcast, be sure to follow us and like our page on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter, at Studio Break. And, of course, on Instagram, be sure to say hello, at Studio underscore Break. Today's music is by Golden Shadow, which features myself, Ben Cohan, and Brett Beery. If you want to see some of Ben's paintings, check out his website, mbencohan.com, and follow him on Instagram at mbencohanstudio. You can check out some of Brett's music by following him on Instagram at Brett Beery. If you'd like to see some of my paintings, head on over to davidlinaway.com. I do have a bunch of work up right now as part of a three-person exhibition entitled Pathways with Nicole Roller and Megan Hines. It's at the McLean County Art Center in Bloomington, Illinois, and it runs through June 4th. Check out the McLean County Art Center at mcac.wildapricot.org. There's also information for some other exhibitions, Once Removed by Jim Neely and Wayne Bertola, as well as Punctuation, 35 Years of Diabetic Debris by Carl Smith. And once again, you can head on over to the McLean County Art website for more details. And once again, that's all linked in our episode 255 on Studio Break. And there we go. Another episode of Studio Break is in the books. Hope that you enjoyed listening. And, of course, hope that your studio practice is full. You're making all sorts of great stuff. Staying safe out there. We'll talk to you real soon.